Hi, you're listening to a Sydney Writers' Festival podcast. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded live as part of the 2022 festival. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to this, what I think is a brilliantly curated session of Sydney Writers' Festival, where we're going to have the privilege of spending a whole hour with two of Australia's finest minds. My name is Claire Wright, and I'm a professor of history at La Trobe University. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we are meeting on the stolen land of the Gadigal people and that their sovereignty was never ceded. I pay my respects to elders past and present and thank them for their hospitality in allowing me and allowing all of us to be on their country here today. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, being Melbourne-based, I live and work on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, where the Woiwurrung word, Womanjika, is used as a greeting. Womanjika is generally translated into English as simply welcome. But I've come to understand that it actually means welcome. What is your purpose? And I think that this is a terrific way of framing any coming together, whether it's of friends or of strangers. And I can think of no better way to frame today's conversation when our purpose is to discuss the potential, the disappointments, and the state of the nation. So let me introduce our speakers. Professor Marsha Langton, AO, is an anthropologist and geographer who has made a significant contribution to government and non-government policy, as well as to Indigenous studies, native title and resource management, arts and culture, and women's rights, for which she received the Office of the Order of Australia Award in 2020. Professor Langton has held the Foundation Chair of Australian Indigenous Studies at the University of Melbourne since February 2000. In 2016, she was honoured as a Redmond Barry Distinguished Professor and was then appointed as the first Associate Provost at the University of Melbourne in 2017. Marcia is the author of over a dozen books and literally hundreds of scholarly journal articles. And if you want to see the breadth of subjects Marcia writes and researches about, go to her University of Melbourne website with a few hours up your sleeves. Marcia's latest book is, wait for it, Marcia Langton, Welcome to Country. First published in 2018, and this is sold in excess of 40,000 copies since its release. It's an absolute blockbuster. Please welcome Marcia to Sydney. Professor Emeritus Julianne Schultz AM, trained as a journalist who worked in television and print media before moving into academia and becoming the founding director of the Australian Centre for Independent Journalism at UTS. Julianne was the publisher and founding editor of Griffith Review and is now Professor Emeritus of Media and Culture at Griffith's Centre for Social <coughs> I'll get that right. Griffith's Centre for Social and Cultural Research. She's also the chair of the conversation. She's an acclaimed author of several books, including Reviving the Fourth Estate and Steel City Blues. She also wrote the librettos to the award-winning operas Black River and Going Into Shadows. In 2009, Julianne became a member of the Order of Australia for her services to journalism. She has served on the board of directors of the ABC, the Grattan Institute and Copyright Agency, and chaired the Australian Film, TV and Radio School, Queensland Design Council and National Cultural Policy Reference Group. Julia's latest thoroughly terrific and terribly important book is The Idea of Australia, A Search for the Soul of the Nation. Please give Julianne a big Sydney welcome. Housekeeping, of course, I imagine you'll have your phones off already, um, but do so if you haven't. And to let you know, we're not going to take questions today because we do only have a short time and there's a lot to get through. Uh, but the, these two wonderful authors are very happy to take your questions in the signing queue when, of course, you're going to rush to get their books after the session. Okay, so two days out from a federal election, it's pretty hard to avoid discussing hot-button political issues in our session today. 
But I do want to look historically at how we have come to be at this particular place, in this particular moment, in the state of the nation. And don't worry, you two, I'm not going to ask for your election predictions. I, I'd like to start by taking you back, um, actually. You both grew up in Queensland, a state that, let's say, is not generally considered to be the intellectual epicentre of Australia. But here you are, two of the most important thinkers and pub public intellectuals in Australia today. Marsha, I wonder if you could start by reflecting on how being a Queenslander has shaped your outlook and your purpose, sort of more state of origin than state of the nation. Well, uh, Julianne, and I, uh, Julianne and I were uh, emailing each other yesterday and she reminded me that we met at the University of Queensland and... Uh, <coughs> You know, I, I don't know what it was like for you, Julianne, but it was a turning point for me as a very young woman um, to uh, meet all of those people who were on campus at that time. So, you know, this would have been during the um, years of the Vietnam War. Uh, the word feminism had, was a newly minted term. Um, there, there was a protest movement in Queensland. Um, Queensland has, in fact, been uh, the... <clears throat> I think that... the incubator, if you like, of uh, many of Australia's intellectuals. Um, Jackie Huggins is sitting right there, um, for instance, and uh, so many others. Um, and I think it is because, well, we grew up under Bjelke Peterson and uh, he was, you know, famously a fascist and he ran Queensland as a fascist state. He had a corrupt police force. Um, he regarded anybody with a view that he didn't agree with as an enemy of the state and it was extremely repressive racist, misogynist, homophobic, um, and of course, you know, there was conscription. So it was a terrible time for young people. Um, but uh, Julianne reminded me of that time on campus and, uh, you know, there was a fabulous group of people who wanted to change the world, change Queensland, end the war, women, achieve women's equality, um, uh, Aboriginal land rights um, and of course Queensland was an apartheid state. Those of us who grew up in Queensland know that we were officially wards of the state until 1984. Uh, Queensland was the last state to desegregate um, and it still hasn't desegregated. Um, it's pretty much a plantation society but you know, I think if you forged in the fire um, and you had, the, you know, the good luck to be amongst those people in the late 60s, early 70s in Queensland, it was, you know, a momentous moment in Australian history when we were able to experiment um, with ideas. That would be my view of it. I'm interested to hear what Julianne remembers from those times. So, Julianne, you were the co-editor of the student newspaper at the time. What, what were the issues that you were thrashing out with your fellow <laughs> student cohort? Um, so, my, Marcia and I overlapped a little, but I was a little bit later, so I'm going to the sort of mid-70s. So, by the time I was editing, co-editing Semper Floriate with my friend Jane Caymans, uh, that was the period when um, the Whitlam government had been kicked out you know, thanks to political shenanigans in many ways in Queensland because the stacking of the Senate made that, made that possible. Um, so conventions were being broken left, right and centre in, in, um, in that state. And, um, I mean, one of the lines that I use in the book to describe it is, is that it was a slapdash autocracy. It was absolutely an autocracy. They were absolutely um, about control. Um, but it was a bit sort of shambolic as well. It didn't mean it wasn't angry and very vicious, but it was sort of, we can be grateful they weren't smarter at what they did, I guess, in some ways. Um, so when I was editing um, Semper at that time, um, it was the period when Joe started banning street marches. 
And so there was another revival of, of, of opposition that was quite widespread. And it really pivoted around questions of civil liberties and rights. Um, but to illustrate the point of the slapdash autocracy, I remember um, after Marcy and I were talking yesterday, I recalled that there was a student, a cover of the student newspaper we did which had a cover of Joe Bjorgit-Peterson and we'd superimposed, I mean, this is student politics, we'd superimposed a, um, like a shot, you know, like a dartboard, you know, image on Joe's face. And, and I remember the special branch police coming out to the University of Queensland to give us a very serious lecture that this was an incitement to murder and we could be charged with very serious crimes as a result of this. They'd previously gone to the printers who had been printing the student newspaper and convinced them that they shouldn't print it. Such was our dangerous threat to the uh, state of the... So it was, it was a pretty volatile time, and I think, as Marcia says, it was one of the things that if you've lived through periods of that sort of repression and that sort of um, abuse of power, I mean, and you have over time see that get unmade, it both gives you, you know, it tempers your response, but it also gives you a sense of things can actually change. You know, this isn't something you've just got to put up with. You know, that change can occur. One of the other um, testing grounds I think that Queensland provided, as well as for intellectuals, was for journalists. I mean, there was a, there's a huge number of the best journalists in this country who actually grew up through that Queensland experience and have been influencing, you know, Australian journalism for a long time. So it's, you know, it's not pleasant, it's not nice, and a lot of damage is done, but it's a good learning thing. Maybe we'll get back a little later on as to so that maybe the basis of my rather flippant remark about um, Queensland's um, lack of sophistication in terms of where we are now with Queensland and Clive Palmer and other other. Um... Clive, Clive was a, a wanted to be a contributor to Semper when I was editing, oh, um, and he did once or twice, but then we would reject him regularly because he was a very needy, skinny streak of the <laughs> streak of misery, and I sometimes think I wonder if I'd done something. Different whether we would not now be paying the price. <laughs> Your own personal sliding doors <laughs> exactly. moment. Marcia, uh, I want to turn to your book specifically. Um, it's called Welcome to Country, and obviously the title is a reference to Welcome to Country ceremonies that are now routinely used to open most public events. Um, we can, I, I fear, get a bit blasé about the importance of, of the ritual, not really listen to it, sort of in the way, I was thinking about this on the plane on the way up, in the way that we kind of ignore the flight attendants giving us safety instructions when we take off now. Um, but that would be to miss the central gesture in the word welcome. It's, I think, an act of generosity, a mark of hospitality, and it implicitly challenges the national narrative about who is host and who is guest. So can you tell us more about what seems to me to be this characteristic act of magnanimity of Indigenous Australians towards settler Australians? Uh, well, I know that many of the elders, um, not so much the younger generations, but the elders feel a responsibility for those who come to their country. Because country is very powerful. It can be very dangerous. It can be very good to you. Uh, but uh, they have a special power to introduce strangers to country uh, country is a sentient being and many elders talk to country um, and I won't go into a lot of detail uh, but what they do for strangers who come to their country is tell the country to treat strange, their strangers well um, and, and they say, well... Um, this person's my friend, don't hurt this person. But there's an obligation on the p visitor to um, behave appropriately in country. So you'll know that in the woman Jekka speeches that elders in Melbourne give, because you've heard it so many times yourself, they ask you to um, treat the country kindly, all that's in it, and especially the children. Um, and so that is an obligation. So, you know, there is a reciprocal obligation. 
um, there, so a set of relationships are set up. Um, and, you know, I've seen it many times. People think that they can treat country with contempt um, and they'll find out the hard way that it's not a good idea to do that. Nearly always. Um, so I, it's a very powerful thing if you understand it properly. I mean, I do agree that many of these welcome to country speeches that we're forced to sit through are um, dreadfully boring and they don't capture the, you know, the sentiment that elders would want to convey. Um, it's become a bit of a cottage industry. I think that's a great shame and I, I say to people, well, you know, really, why, why, do we, um, why do we do this if we're debasing Aboriginal culture in this way? Which I believe it is. So I'm very fussy about which elders I want delivering the welcome to country um, speech or ceremony at, at, at the university. And, you know, I have my favourites, Auntie Di Kerr, of course, is number one with me. And, you know, you find around the country that there are elders who are genuine um, and they convey a sense of Aboriginal culture that, you know, is very touching and you, you can feel the power of it. Um, and it's a great shame, I think, that there are people who use these uh, ceremonies in uh, a kind of transactional way. So, yeah, thanks for asking that question. It's a tough one. I'd like to stick with it for a minute in terms of the responsibility that you took on in writing your book. Um, in, in some ways, Welcome to Country is sort of like a lonely planet of Indigenous Australia. But I really struggle to find an appropriate analogy or metaphor for actually what your book does. It's not really a guidebook, it's not a smorgasbord, um, it's not an encyclopedia. The best that I can come up with is it's like a mind map, a really open mind map. Can I ask you what you set out to achieve with the book and why you think it has landed so solidly with readers now? I said before, 40,000 copies, it's a huge amount. And do you think it would have 20 years ago when you became the Foundation Chair of Indigenous Studies at Melbourne University? Oh, yeah. Well, there was, in fact, a Lonely Planet uh, that was edited by an Aboriginal person. I believe it was Philip Morrissey. Um, and it's kind of sank without trace. Uh, and it was a typical Lonely Planet book. And, I mean, you know, Lonely Planet books are, you know, it's a bit like a menu, isn't it? It's... You know, you look it up, you look up where the train station is and that's it, that's what, that's what you get. Uh, this book, however, was a, what you call a curated book. So the publisher, Hardy Grant, uh, came to me uh, and asked me if I'd be interested. Um, and I said, yeah, absolutely. So we curated it together. It was quite a team of people who put that together and you'll see the contributors in the back of the book. There are some missing who didn't want their photos and names in the book. Uh, for the very reason that you talk about in your book, you know, the cancel culture, the attack from the, the right on young people, young women especially, um, who are accused of being woke. Um, so, you know, they're silenced. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, we... Well, there's been... That's the second edition now. So, you know, it was quite a debate uh, about what to put in it. So, you know, very simple format introductory essay entries on where you can go. Most of the entries are researched and written by young Indigenous um, people, scholars, cultural practitioners, um, and the essay, shall we call it, um, is my work, uh, with a lot of help from my friends and relations. Um, And, you know, it's a I would call it a conversation with the nation. What do I want people to know as, you know, a raggedy old university lecturer? Um, what do I want other Australians to know about their country? Um, in a, and, you know, as a teacher, you have to ask yourself, am I getting through to people? Um, you know, 
You don't know till you see the lights go on in their eyes. You can't always tell if what you're trying to convey is being understood. So it's, you know, I had that psychological battle with how do I present information um, so that the audience might be, you know, amenable to taking it seriously. You know, you, you hear people say things like, oh, yeah, you know, like about it, say, like, you have the Biennale of Sydney now. Um, people say, oh, that's Aboriginal art. We know what that's all about. Let's not see that. Let's go and see that, you know. Well, actually, they don't know anything about Aboriginal Australia. They're, you do. I know you do. I was just looking at the photos on your phone. But how many people are there like you who've lived with an Aboriginal family and, you know, can say people's names properly, mm. for one, yeah, and know about the history of the family. Very few Australians can say that. I mean, there are still people in my university who think we were wiped off the face of the earth and can't figure out why I claim to be Aboriginal. And they think it's all a pretense. And they, they say, publicly say things like, oh, reconciliation's gone too far, right? So, you know, there are all of those challenges. This is what I mean about the psychological struggle. How do you convey what Australians really need to understand if they purport to be Australian? Mm -hmm. Julianne, your book, did, do you want so to jump in respond? there? Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, one of the things that I think is so wonderful about, about your book, Marcia, is that um, it, it, it is a making accessible information, which would, other, would once not have been accessible for a whole lot of reasons, um, you know, of people being protective about, about sacred and secret information, about the silencing that was done by settlers, um, and just sort of the attempt, of, I mean, what I describe as the sort of terra nullius of the mind, you know, to wipe a blank slate, let's keep it clean, pretend there's nothing there. But one of the things that really struck me when I was, especially when I was rereading it um, over the last day or so, was that there was a comment that Vladimir Zelensky made um, at the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. He said, you can't wipe out a culture. Now, you know, I don't know whether that's going to prove to be true or not. I mean, I hope he's right. Um, but I, it made me think about the attempt that Settler Australia has done to wipe out First Nations cultures. You know, it's been a deliberate strategy for a very, very long time. And what books like yours, yours in particular does is demonstrate that actually, as Zelensky says, it's not so easy to wipe out a culture if, you've, if it is so deeply grounded, you know, and the, the Ukrainians, you know, hang back to, you know, can trace their history back not nearly as far as First Nations Australians, but, but can trace it back for a very, very long time. I mean, Kiev is 500 years older than Moscow, you know. This is not something which is invisible to them. It's something in their essence. And I was very much struck that while white Australia has never had to deal with anything like the Ukraine situation, you know, First Nations Australia has. And yet, you know, we look around at events like this and we look at, you know, all the sort of storytelling, we look at all the sort of richness of um, Aboriginal culture and or Torres Strait Islander culture as well in this country. It's for all the effort in the world to wipe it out, it's still there. And it's still there in this way that, that you so beautifully describe in that, in that book. Um, so I think that's a really powerful, you know, there's, a really, there's an analogy with, with what's going on in the world at the moment, which is really very, it's worth remembering. Absolutely, and I do commend the book to you because, um, as Marcia said, it's what, it's what Australians should know to be able to live in our country today. Julianne, one of, um, uh, the, your book starts with six pages, talking about accolades, um, six pages of accolades from a range of academics, writers and thinkers. Um, I particularly like the endorsement of the political scientist Chris Wallace, who calls the book a cerebral who do you think you are for a nation. <laughs> I think it's a great analogy because it suggests that we can never really get away from our collective ancestry, um, our, our conceptual and ideological DNA, and, and particularly that evidence rather than mythology are what will show us the truth about ourselves. So tell us Tell us when you first started thinking about retracing those steps of our, what you call, derivative nation. Mm. Um, look, I think it's been a very long work in progress because, in a way, um, Australia has sort of been my project all my life. Um, and one of the things I say in the book is that one of the um, 
beauties of growing up in Australia in the period that, that I have is that more has been revealed. You know, as, as I've grown up, more has become known. It's not because of me, but just as there's so much more work being done, many people thinking. And so any sort of notion of it's just a blank slate, you know, is just so, you know, might have been there when I was a very, very young child, but it's just completely in, intolerable. Uh, just not acceptable. So that learning, I think, is really one of the things that has been part of my sort of my sort of process, as a you know, just as a citizen living in the country. Um, I guess my, in some ways, my starting point in really trying to make sense of what Australia is now probably really kicked off a bit um, when Pauline Hanson, not so much when Pauline Hanson was elected in 1996, because at some level at that point, when she was elected in that, as a disendorsed Liberal candidate for the seat of Oxley, which was around Ipswich in, in Queensland, and I was writing for the Courier-Mail at the time, um, at some level it made a certain sort of sense because this was a group of people who were pretty economically disadvantaged. They hadn't really benefited from the changes that had, that had swept much of the country along. And you could sort of see where that was where that was coming from. But seeing the vociferousness and the nature of the racism and the sort of closed-mindedness um, that got embodied in the Hanson message. Now, initially, that was rejected. It was rejected by the media. It was rejected by, in the parliament. It was generally, you know, like, this is... This is not contemporary Australia. This, might, this language might have been acceptable 100 years ago. It is no longer acceptable. But what has happened in that 20-odd years since she was first elected is that that has moved from the margin as an echo of something which was mainstream discussion in 1901 at Federation to actually shaping political discourse in the 21st century. And I was really troubled as to how easily those old tropes, those old ways of thinking and seeing and being could, could be co-opted into the political process, but then shape it, you know. And it has done so ever since John Howard went softly on Pauline Hanson and ever since, you know, with variations along the way, it's been sitting there, this sort of 2-3% of people who share her views, you know, with ardour have infiltrated the mainstream of the, of the political process. Now, that's a very different Australia to the one that I saw evolve as a young woman. I mean, when we talk about the sort of experience of the University of Queensland in the, in the 1970s, I mean, the Australia that emerged out of that fulcrum was a very, you know, it was a very different place. And I guess what worried me was, I mean, a bit like, you know, who do you think you are or, you know, a psychoanalyst or something. I mean, if you're trying to figure out why something is playing out now, you've got to know where it's come from and what the bits were that keep coming back and why they keep coming back. So I guess that what I was trying to do with the book was to look for those threads, um, to marry them in a way with the COVID years and what they revealed, and then to th put in a bit of my own experience. Um, and it's not, my, it's not a memoir, it's not a, my biography by any means, um, but it's, it, I tell quite a lot of stories about the period when I was both a child growing up in country Victoria and country New South Wales especially, um, out in Western, Western New South Wales and Western Victoria, both areas with enormously rich, multi-layered First Nations and settler histories, which was sort of made invisible. Um, so I tell those stories, but I also tell a lot of stories from when I was in my early 20s. And I didn't really understand, actually, even as I was writing it, I mean, some of them are quite funny and some of them are good stories, but I didn't really understand until I got to the end of the book and I um, read Michelle de Cresta's Scary Monsters, the, 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 the establishment part, not the future part. And in it, she quotes this line from... Her central character quotes a line from Napoleon who said, if you want to understand how somebody sees the world, you need to understand what it looks like when they're in their early 20s. And I said this to a psychotherapist friend of mine. I said, oh, that's sort of interesting. And he said, well, of course, you know, that's 101. You know, it's the point at which you're going from being a child to being an adult, and so you're absorbing what's around you and trying to make sense of it. And so it was sort of this funny process of weaving back through the history as I could research and find it and what I knew but then trying to weave it in with my own experience and saying, okay, what I, 
what I saw in a changing Australia has moved on, but still it's there. Mm. So it's that, that, I guess, was part of what I was trying mm -hmm. to do. You, you mentioned then federation, and it's a, obviously an important starting point because it, it, it should be known that this book is, although it's Australian history, doesn't go back through the colonial period. You're really talking about the nation mm. from the start of the nation constitutionally, mm. technically. And one of my favourite sequences in the book is when you imagine what the American stage show Hamilton might look like if it was recast in the Australian context. You suggest that um, Alfred Deacon might get the Alexander Hamilton equivalent part. But you also create a great role for Rose Scott. Scott's competing idea of the nation, you tell us, was one that was decentralised, where people had direct contact with their representatives. And I actually just really want to read this little bit because this is her words. For heaven's sake, she argued, let us divest ourselves of the old-fashioned idea that a great nation is made out of huge national de debts, standing armies, expensive buildings, much territory, artificial sentiment, fat billets for some people whilst others starve. So, I want to ask you, Julianne, could the Australian nation have had an alternative beginning? Was there a sliding doors moment there for the nation? <laughs> um, yeah, I think there probably was. And, I mean, this is, that's, this is terribly... I mean, you're a historian. I, I can't go into this territory, but I'm a journalist. I can make it up. Um, um, <laughs> um, one, of, uh, one of the things I think is really interesting is... I mean, um, is that the, 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 the constitution that we've got was crafted, you know, by a, blo a group of... Uh, another Rose Scott's lovely line, whiskery blokes, um, who got on a boat up the Hawkesbury, most of them with the flu, to draft the constitution. And, you know, it's a working trading relationship between, you know, the bunch of colonies. Um, and I was certainly brought up to think, oh, well, you know, Australia's got one of the first constitutions in the world, and it's been a long democratic tradition, and, you know, and so on and so forth. You know, and I re as I was doing the research, um, Linda Colley, who's a British-American historian, has done this fabulous book about constitutions. And I think at the point that the Australian constitution was written, there was something like 165 elsewhere in the world. Pitcairn Islands had given the women the vote in 19 1838. Um, John Dunlop Lang had come back to Australia having observed the writing of the Californian Constitution, which included freedom of speech, freedom of the press, you know, freedom of association, all the sort of things that we, would, we don't have in ours explicitly, um, and argued that that's the sort of constitution that you know, a new nation should have. Um, the New Zealand Premier, George Grey, was here in the early constitutional debates saying we shouldn't, there shouldn't be a, a British head of state. There should, this should be its own country and it should have an Australian head of state. So it all gets sort of played down and what we get is a very sort of bureaucratic story of, you know, whiskery blokes on a boat, you know, writing something out, um, which eventually has to be approved by the, by the British Foreign Office or Colonial Office, the Parliament, and signed by the Queen, um, rather than it being an expression of a really bold sort of ambition for a, for a, new, for a new nation. I mean, the work you've done on, on women's suffrage, for instance, I mean, this was one of the... When I was reading your book, I was very much struck that, you know, that um, female suffrage, which had been introduced in, in South Australia well ahead of, you know, anywhere else, and the right to stand for parliament, not just to vote, um, that that could well have been something that was enshrined in the Constitution. Instead, and again, this is one of those patterns of time-honoured things, it was a political deal that was done a couple of years later um, at the cost of First Nations people who, who lost their rights to vote. So it's that sort of pattern of not being quite bold enough, not being quite imaginative enough, not saying, actually, if you've got this vast continent, you've got this amazing sort of history and capacity, why don't you aim a bit higher? So, Marcia, on that... Um Julianne's correct, the, the Franchise Act uh, of 1901 that gave women those world-leading rights to stand for parliament and to vote, also disenfranchised all Indigenous people. Well, in South Australia, I think. Except those who, who, except those who already had it. Yeah. It excluded yeah. them from the federal vote. Yeah. 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 Do, do you believe that we can ever truly eradicate the racism that was hard-baked into the foundation um, of the nation, I mean, the racist basis for colonial dispossession in the first place, and then the explicit exclusion from yeah, the constitutional uh, can you hear me now? reckoning of personhood. Sorry. 
Okay, so now, um, you know, I'm 70 years old and I've been on the receiving end of millions of racist microaggressions from people who have no idea that they're being racist. Uh, so that now I don't even know if white people are being racist or if they're just being white people. Um, so, uh, and there's really no way to know, you know, because if you ask them, they say, no, of course I'm not racist. No, I've got a racist bone in my body, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, I think the style of Australian racism is very well revealed in Julie Ann's book. Um, and along with the misogyny, I mean, what, you know, Adam Goods and Yasmin went through. I mean, and Julie Ann does, you know, describe very well what Murdoch's press did and what his various agents did, you know, the... Uh, but it, 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 it is a cultural thing in Australia to, you know, because, you know, Andrew Bolt and Greg Sheridan didn't go and tell all those yobbos to boo Adam Goods. That, you know, that was a homegrown movement like, you know, Pauline Hanson's nonsense. Um, what, it, what brought about the attacks on Yasmin? I mean... None of those people who attacked her strike me as particularly patriotic. None of them ever served in the military. Um, I doubt that they'd ever get out of bed at three o'clock in the morning to go to an Anzac ceremony. I can't see that with Alan Jones or Andrew Bolt. So highly unlikely. Um, and uh, so that, but the vicious attacks on Yasmin, on Adam Goods. And, you know, and the list goes on. Well, no, I don't think there's an end to the racism. Um, and, but that's the glory of Julianne's book. She talks about a civic society, right? And the civic strengths that we need to pay attention to. Because, of course, as you've just discussed, Australia was created as a white ethnocrat ethnocratic state by the drafters, drafters of the Constitution, and very deliberately so. It's not an accident. It's very, very deliberate. Um, so not only were Aboriginal people, and of course Torres Strait Islanders who never get a mention anywhere, excluded from the Constitution, so were Maori. You know, for a short time there was an idea to incorporate New Zealand into Australia's Constitution. And the drafters of the Constitution said no, because if you had the Maori, the Aborigines, and, you know, and all the other coloured peoples, they'd outnumber the whites. And then, you know, what, what happens with Section 52, why do they deliberately exclude Aborigines from the, from the census and, uh, uh, and from um, the lawmaking powers of Parliament? And it was because they hadn't finished their colonial project of taking over the country. They knew that they'd done a pretty good job of exterminating Aborigines in New South Wales and Victoria, um, which was where white people were paying taxes. But the real problem, and this is described in Lanaus's um, history of the Constitution, was that if they included Aborigines, Maoris, coloured people, they wouldn't those states with the big Aboriginal populations would not be contributing their fair share of tax and Victoria and New South Wales would have to carry the tax burden. That's why they excluded Aboriginal people, because they hadn't finished wiping out Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory, South Australia, Queensland and Western Australia. And they knew it. It's in the debates. It's as clear as daylight. And there are many calls in the constitutional debates, uh, you know, the conventions of the late 19th century, to finish the job and wipe out the Aborigines. And there are only, like, uh, from memory, two people who say, no, this is, you know, immoral. Mm. The rest of them are all barking mad, you know, and genocidaires, actually. 
And another example, another example of that, which I think is really powerful, was, was the, the move to deport um, South Sea Islanders who'd been brought here as you know, when, slaves by any other name. I know there's a whole argument about what constitutes slavery and so on, but, but effectively... They were slaves. They were slaves. I they mean, were I'm, slaves. They were slaves. Um, and, and so the, the first act of that parliament is the deportation of the Pacific Islanders. Yeah. And the reason they were doing that was, again, for the same reason. You know, it's you don't want these black people, you know, causing trouble, fermenting difficulty in the future. They were following the, the attempt in the United States to deport, after the Civil War, to deport all black people because that would solve the problem. So little Australia says, oh, we've got a fewer number, we can get rid of them, you know, we send them to another island. Well, they're still trying to deport people and they're also now... It's, there's a case in the High Court yeah. to test whether or not the Commonwealth can de deport people of yeah. who are Aboriginal, who, who do not have formal citizenship rights, yeah. even though they're Aboriginal. Yeah, right? the, sending, the sending of people away to other islands is deeply ingrained. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just absolutely, you know, day two, week two of settlement, you're sending people off to islands, you know, for stealing, yeah. stealing bits of flour. But, but the thing that was, I mean, it was so striking, I thought about that attempted deportation of the South Sea Islanders was, you know, there was a pushback and people said, no, we don't want to go. So there was an appeal that was made and some were able to stay and so on. But it's that, it's the same sort of mentality um, um, that, that thinks you can wipe a slate clean, you know, in, with the sort of racist stuff that you're talking about. I wonder, though, you know, just picking up on what you were saying before about whether that racism is so entrenched. I mean, part of the... And I think it is, absolutely. But one of the things that makes me think that if um, the, the voice to parliament and constitutional recognition is at some point finally introduced, um, in, accepted by the Australian people and introduced into the constitution, my sort of sense, and maybe I'm being a bit Pollyanna-ish about this, but my sense is that if that, what Jeremy Bentham called an incurable flaw, is finally addressed and that flaw is healed, my sort of optimistic self says, if you can address what is the most fundamental foundation error in the formation of the nation, if that can be addressed formally, constitutionally, and then lead to a whole lot of other sort of actions, that that might well start to free people up to think, actually, if we can do that, we can actually do anything. Um, so that's my sort of beyond its intrinsic value, that's my sort of hope that that wave can take with it a generation and generations of people who actually want, want us to do better. So let's go there, Marsha. What's your take on voice? Because clearly it's a concept um, that... On voice. Yeah. So it's clearly a, a, um, a term that has come to stand in for a whole range of essential concerns and demands and baseline demands of First Nations people. It's, of course, the keystone of the Uluru Statement, unless you're following the logic of the Greens, um, who have put voice behind treaty in their timeline for healing and justice. What does voice mean to you and why is it so important? Well, I agree with what uh, Julianne just said. Uh, and I don't know if I convey it um, sufficiently in Welcome to Country, but I do think that decent Australians, in the same way that, you know, people are now rallying around the climate crisis um, and, you know, shifting their vote from in order to address the climate crisis, I mean, all, in all sorts of directions, but... I do think that many Australians similarly understand that what they pass on to their children is very important and it's more than just, you know, a house, property, you know, money in the bank. There's more to what you part to that, to, you know, the legacy that you leave your children. Okay, so you've, you know, people generally try to raise their children well and make them good citizens. But as you get older, people start to think, well, what am I actually leaving my children? Look at this world. The climate crisis, environmental degradation. Just to be Australian, must be mended. It must be fixed. It must, you know, it, it must be repaired. 
Although I, I, do, I have met Australians who, in one way or another, convey to me the sense of shame that they feel. And, you know, people don't want to leave a legacy like this to their children. So, yeah, there has to be a voice. Why, why should there be a voice? Well, because... And you, you know I've worked on the, the problem for two years with Professor Tom Calmer, a group of 51 people in three groups. We presented a major report to government. It's our report to government. It's not a government report. And I've got to say, Julianne, most journalists in the country are too lazy to read it or understand know, it or understand what we're saying to them I about know, it. I was rereading it the other day. I mean, the enormity of the work that you did in that was just extraordinary, you know. And that walking the fine line, because, you know, the brief you got from the government, actually, what you weren't meant to go where you went. And, and the way you found your way around that by listening to what people were saying is an extraordinary exercise in, you know... You know, because you and Tom have had that deep experience of working with government and, and knowing how you can push them without sort of, you know, whatever, you know, I'm going to be careful in my language, but, but I, just, I just thought well, that... Well, we did, yeah. yeah we pushed, pushed the them. limits of the terms of reference absolutely, right out to absolutely. the... And just you, over the edge. And you left it as, as your report, but there's no escaping the conclusions. I mean, and, and the weight of the conclusions, I mean, the depth of the consultation, the number of people you spoke to, you know... All of that, you know. I mean, one of the things that I that I say about the, you know, about the whole that whole process, and your report plays, in, you know, is is a big part of it. What we've seen over the last whatever it is now, God, it seems to have been going on forever, but over the last, um, um, you know, ten years near enough, is the greatest experiment in deliberative democracy in this country ever. And it's probably the great, you know, one of the best in the world. I mean, the outcome that came through the voice stuff at Uluru was not what the official committee wanted necessarily. You know, it was something that was worked up through the consultations and it was worked up through the discussions and people got where they wanted to get to. Your, your report similarly takes, takes people well beyond, you know, what, you know, could have been crafted in advance in Canberra, you know, because it's, it's that sort of process. Now, we have no, you know, no very little other experience of that sort of... It wasn't there in the Constitution debates. I mean, it was there in your feminists. You know, they were, they were doing it. But this sort of process of working from the bottom up to actually listen and refine the idea and calibrate it in a way that works for this place at this time. I mean, that's... A, intellectually, it's a huge exercise. Politically, it's an enormous exercise. And yet we've got... For all that goodwill, we have politicians just running away from it as though they're still in the you know early 20th century, rather than this is going to be the sort of model. The late 19th if a world's century. going to if the world's going to work in future, what we have observed through the you know the internet stuff and you know like the changes in the world that happen, you're going to have to find a way of taking people with you, and that can be for good or it can be for real, as we've seen in plenty of other places. And, I mean, we've got two great examples of how that can be for good. So I think a referendum is a great idea and it will eventually happen. I hope, though, that people don't rush into it when Australians aren't ready and, uh, you know, the very same people who attacked Yasmin and Adam um, and Grace Tame and many others will mount a no case and, you know, put uh, well, as you say, an affirmative I mean, answer to the voice at yeah. risk. And I'm, as you I'm say, very concerned about that. Yeah. No, I think you're right. To be, and I, but as you say, I mean, the, 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 in a way, it's what Yasmin and Grace and Adam and the others do is flip the thing about shame. You know, that the, what, in a way that the shame has to be put back on those who want to obstruct rather than on those who feel that they are you know, they've been blocked, you know, I mean, and so that momentum to doing that, um, you know, it comes through things like this, it comes through conversation, it com comes through culture. I mean, culture is going to lead this and the politicians will follow. Um, I mean, it's been very interesting, I think, to watch in the election campaign that clearly for Albanese, this is a really central issue. And he goes into his big address, his big speeches, I mean, he did at the press club the other day, he did the Perth address... You know, the, the putting the, the referendum on this is absolutely central to what he thinks is a future Australia. It barely gets reported. 
I know. We go to dot point number six about, you know, what was it about again? I can't remember the dot points. But, you know, the, the big fundamental thing, which actually, if you're going to do anything else, you've got to get this right. I'm, I'm pleased to see that that's their policy. Uh, and it, it is a great shame that it hasn't been covered adequately in the media. Uh, that, you know, he, he did say he'd do it in the first term of government. Mm. Anyway... But they've all said that since uh, 2012, haven't they? Yeah, well, as I tell that story in the, yeah. in the book of John Howard in his, di you know, I think his last speech, which was before he got voted out, was, yeah. I'm going to have said, a... <laughs> he said he'd do it. Tony <laughs> Abbott said he'd do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's true. Mm -hmm. uh, but the thing is, of course, is... And I, I think this is what the Conservatives are frightened of. If Indigenous people have a voice, they have agency... Mm -hmm and they're no longer mute and silenced by, you know, the Murdochs, the old elites, you know, the people who are born to rule. Um, and those who just don't pay attention. Yeah, the people mm. who don't care. Mm. So, um, Julianne, it, it seems to me that the idea of voice is just as critical to the concerns of gender justice as it is to racial reconciliation. I mean, the Me Too movement, the Time's Up movement, the March for Justice movement we saw last year, Grace Tame and her rousing call to make some noise, um, e even the, the rise of the so-called teal independents in this election who are almost exclusively women. Mm. It, all of that has turned on the idea um, that staying quiet is no longer an option for women, that, that, that women must raise their voices out of a learned and internalised obsequiousness and timidity. So can you reflect on whether this focus on women's voices is a new feature in public debate or whether women's voices have been routinely raised, as you were suggesting in the 70s at Queensland University, only to be silenced anew generation after generation? Look, I think there have been strong women's voices um, always in this land. I mean, you know, bef before white settlement, there were strong women's voices. There, there are, you know, this is... I mean, I'm sort of a bit inclined to write a revisionist story of Australia, making it a, a feminist nation rather than, <laughs> rather than something else, because I think there is actually something really extraordinary about, about women who've been really important in shaping things, and then they just... They're made to disappear. Um, so I think they've always been there. I mean, your, your, your women of Eureka are there. You know, the women, the, the feminists that you write about in the in the um, franchise, you know, suffrage debates. Um, so I think they've been there, and but they have been silenced. And the methods of silencing, I think, one of the things that really struck me when I was writing the book was how what I call the architecture of silence is so well developed in this society. I mean, it's. Its foundation is essentially bureaucratic, which means that there are records and papers and documents and things tied and written up and sent away and written down. Um, and yet the, the process of silencing is, 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 is more than its opposite. I mean, we've seen it in the whole sort of archives debate. There was long, long, long periods of censorship which were just extraordinary in their, in their scope. And there's a lovely, uh, lovely story in Nicole Moore's book called The Censor's Library where she was trying to find all the books, the thousands, the tens of thousands of books that have been censored over the years by Commonwealth censors, because there are extra censors in each of the states, of course. Um, and she couldn't find them. And eventually she found this file in the, the National Archives um, in the repository out in Western Sydney, which said miscellaneous. <laughs> miscellaneous was something like, you know, 12,000 boxes of... Uh, 7,000 boxes of books, all neatly bound in brown paper, you know, which had been, which had been censored and put away in the archives. Um, so the, the, the architecture of science, the making of things invisible, of making things go away, of not talking about it, um, is part of the process that makes it pos has made it possible to sort of continue occupying the land, continue making the society work, because if you, if you come to everything as a blank slate, well, everything's new. New migrants, it's all new. Everything's new all the time. And I guess what I'm trying to do in this is to say, I don't want, I don't want us as Australians to be caught in the past. I don't want to be one of those countries where you can't do anything that wasn't done before. But unless you actually have some awareness of what's gone before, you can never become a grown-up. You're stuck in this perpetual childhood. And so that's, I think, what's happened. 
I mean, it's inter so interesting to see these, the, these women emerging in this election, especially. Um, because, I mean, when I was studying political science at University of Queensland, I mean, the bedrock was that women would vote conservative, that women would vote conservative, and they would never be, they would never be progressive. And, and I, at the time, you know, we were radical young women, we thought this was just mad. Um, but it probably took until 1984 when the Equal Rights you know, uh, legislation was passed, and all of a sudden, you know, the larger numbers of women, you know, hundreds of thousands of women who protested against that right, you know, I mean, that, that is just bizarre, really. I mean, talk about not acting in your own self-interest. Um, so that process of women finding the confidence to actually assert what is in their interests has been a long progress. It will be something that is pushed back against, but it is something which is essential. Mm. I'm, I'm astounded to find that we only have five minutes left. I said at the beginning that we'd be hard-pressed. I've got four pages of questions that we're not <laughs> going to get to. Um, so I am going to sort of move towards wrapping up. Um, I don't want to be reductionist, but Marcia, if you could nominate one thing one beautiful blue sky dreaming thing that would change the nation for the better, and it could be instituted tomorrow, what would that be? Uh, well, all, all of our debates are irrelevant unless we tackle climate change, uh, because... I think the scientists are saying that, uh, is it 2050? Uh, biodiversity's, the world's biodiversity is finished, 2050. So I, I read the science of, of, of climate change every day. Uh, we have to um, have electric vehicles, we have to ride our bicycles, we have to stop fossil fuel mining, we have to stop using fossil fuels. We better start transitioning fast. We better re stop consuming. We better recycle. Um, we have to change our way of life. Um, we're heading into uh, the end of times unless we change the world. Well, just like racism, I don't think human beings are going to stop being stupid. I think we are walking into the end of times. Um, and I, I do wish my blue sky dream is that uh, humanity would do something about it. Julianne, what about you? Um, I'm going to be more optimistic. <laughs> um, look, I agree, agree about climate change. Um, I, um, I mean, I think my... And I, I'm... What I'm going to say is not to deny that at all, because I agree, absolutely agree about all of that. I mean, I would like to see something that made equality, actual equality, income equality, education equality, social equality, gender equality, actually real. I mean, I think if people were freed from the sort of, um, the, you know, the disparities which have become so sharp, um, and we, I think that that would be a liberation, you know, so... And which Rose Scott identified in 1901. Yeah, indeed, indeed. I mean, and actually, the Rose Scott thing is so, is so telling with the teal, the teal women. I mean, it's like they're acting out what, what, what she was writing about then. And so, uh, in, in an Australian context, I mean, I, my sense is that if we get towards... Uh, we get to a sort of truth-telling process as part of this voice thing... Um, and we'll see it in the, in the states. I mean, New South, Victoria started at Queensland's starting and so on. That truth-telling will, will, will reveal things locally about places, about people, about human relations. Some of it will be bad, some of it will be good, some of it will be affirming. Much of it will, you know, as that process starts, in my view, extend beyond the sort of first contact into all sorts of truth-tellings that, that happen. You know, we suppose you had so many waves of migration and experience and trying to adjust to a different place, that that local story, and if you combine that then with the local stuff that people experienced during COVID, I mean, I know Sydney wasn't as bad as Melbourne, but it was pretty bad, you know, that long lockdown last year, when people were confined to their five kilometres 
um, that people started to understand and connect at a local level in a way that they hadn't done before. I think there's real power in that, and I think the combination of those things with the environment, because again, it's what happens in your patch where you're going to really notice it, that there is real strength in that if we can find a way of marshalling it using the new tools which come through digitalization and so on. You know, it's not the old foobar media telling us what to think. It's actually something which is much more organic. So when I put my optimistic hat on and say, like Zelensky, culture will prevail, the best might prevail, it'll come out of that collective stuff at a sort of local level. Oh, you're right. You know, you're quite right. Without the intellectual capacity, the social um, circumstances or conditions for people to uh, confront the truth, they can't confront the truth. Mm. It's true. Mm. Equality is necessary. Mm. Well, that's all we've got time for. I would like to thank you both for... Bo for the beautiful and um, passionate and engaged conversation that we've had today, but particularly for taking the time and the generosity and the responsibility to write these books. They are very generous books. They are very hopeful books. And they are both, and I think this is incredibly important, they are evidence-based books that give us knowledge about our country that will be part of this process, I think, that you're talking about in terms of making things better. Thank you. You've been listening to a Sydney Writers Festival podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and go to swf.org.au for more great content. <laughs>